Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 978. On today's show, David Lorela begins the program by welcoming Cincinnati Reds general manager Nick Kral. Nick has been with the club for two decades now, and he shares his thoughts on things like how difficult it can be to trade stars, how hard the month of April was, and how he feels about the idea of Joey Votto walking too much. We also hear about Reds prospects that the front office is excited about, such as Ellie De La Cruz, Brandon Williamson, Connor Phillips, and Chase Petty, as well as how the team has improved its relationship with analytics since Crawl joined. When I first got here, I came from Oakland. So somebody said, oh, well, you, you know analytics. And I said, I have no idea what you're doing here. I, I was not even close to qualified. I could use Excel. And I think that's something where, you know, over the years, we, we've really done a purposeful job of, of making sure that we're adding more and more to our analytics group. Dick came in and I think 06 and, and you know, it's something we, we really started to grow our analytics department starting around that time, uh, you know, hiring Sam Grossman and then uh, just adding more to that. And whether it's with our uh, analytics staff or, you know, a- adding analysts in, in the dugout with our scouting departments and, and just, just growing that staff over time. After that, Ben Clemens and Dan Zimborski get together to play a little Freaky Friday and discuss what each other has been writing about. They talk about the surging Blue Jays and the inscrutable Adam Simber, and how hard it is to find comparison with pitchers with such unique deliveries, as well as the firing of Joe Madden and how we all know that the manager was not responsible for the Angels' struggles. Dan and Ben also banter about Luis Arias's wild season, Jordan Alvarez being such a good hitter that his DH role doesn't matter, the Giants' weird bunting patterns, how King Felix got his nickname, and how you cannot give yourself one. Would you be Dan the man Zimborski? I don't know. I don't think you can call your you can't give yourself the nickname the man. That's, That's something that someone point. else has to chant for you. Yeah, presumably Stan Musial did not give himself that nickname. Yeah. I mean like, oh Stan Musial, you could call me the man. Like, oh. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Stan the man. I mean, this is now a pivot into another article I wrote, but Brandon Belt nicknamed himself the captain and wore a captain's hat to a game. Well, he I sewed think- a captain's C onto his jersey and then wore a captain's hat. That's kind of the same. True, but he did he did make the effort to have props. Oh, that's so a that good point. It, it, it keeps it keeps a funny element. Like if he had called himself the Grand Emperor, you're like that's weird. But if he had showed up with like a crown and an, an ermine robe <laughs> and like a, 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 an entourage a train of attendants, yeah, yeah. This this is my Earl of the Tenderloin or something. That would be cool. But before we get to these segments, I must issue you my weekly reminder to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you get Fangraphs merch, but you can pick up an ad-free membership for yourself or as a gift for a friend. It is the best way to both browse the site and to help support us in doing everything we're doing. And don't forget to check out our new line of Fangraphs and Effectively Wild merch over at BreakingTea.com, a new line of swag with a new partner if you are looking to upgrade your Fangraphs fit. Thank you for all of your support, and enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guest is Nick Kral, uh, general manager of the Cincinnati Reds. Nick, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, Nick, I mentioned to you about a week ago that Ben Charrington and Derek Falvey have been guests uh, on the show in the past few months. Something I didn't mention, but maybe should have, is that one of your former analysts who is now working with the Red Sox was on in April. And that would be Katie Crawl, who, as we addressed on that podcast, is not related to you. That is correct. She is not related, but uh, she's she's uh, she's really good, and, and uh, you know I wish her all the best. She's in a, in a great spot. Katie is in a great spot, and she was a great guest. One thing that she did mention, you know, on the pod, is that she had occasionally, with the Reds, would receive voicemail that was meant for you. Did that ever happen? The opposite? Did you ever get messages meant for, for Katie? When we were in the process of hiring her, so my, my daughter is also named Katie Crawl, and I referred to her as, as Bug, and I, I responded with, with uh, was texting her, but I instead texted Katie, and she said, what? And I was like, oh, God, and I had to explain it to her that I was trying to text my daughter, not her. <laughs> so I had to change the uh, contacts of uh, which who's my daughter and, and, and who was Katie. No, that sounds dangerous, Nick. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no, for sure. Something I did not learn until recently, and, and while I've known that you've been with the Reds for some time, I didn't realize that it is now actually uh, two 
full decade. So you have seen the organization change quite a bit in that time. Yeah, you know, I've grown up in this organization a lot in a lot of different roles. It's been a lot of fun working for a lot of different people, uh, different experiences, uh, different departments. And yeah, you've seen a lot of us go from one system to another. And, and you know, it's been really exciting to, to work here. And, and uh, we have a lot of good people here. You certainly do. There are also, of course, good people, as happens in the game, who, who are no longer there. One is Dick Williams, who you were the assistant GM to for, for a number of years, you know, before replacing Dick in the lead role. Is it fair to say that he transformed the organization in, in many ways, in part bringing it up to speed with analytics? Yeah, I think, you know, we, we've had a, uh, when I first got here, I came from Oakland. So somebody said, oh, well, you you know analytics. And I said, I have no idea what you're doing here. I, I was not even close to qualified. I could use Excel. And I think that's something where, you know, over the years, we, we've really done a purposeful job of, of making sure that we're adding more and more to our analytics group. Dick came in and I think 06 and, and you know, it's something we, we really started to grow our analytics department starting around that time, uh, you know, hiring Sam Grossman and then uh, just adding more to that. And whether it's with our uh, analytics staff or, you know, a- adding analysts in, in the dugout with our scouting departments and, and just, just growing that staff over time. No, that staff has certainly grown. I know that Sam is now an assistant GM. Do you view the Reds at all as being fairly cutting edge in analytics, or do you think that in some respects you're catching up to some of the teams that are you know, more known for analytics? I think we, we've hired a, a group of really good people with our analytics group. I think that we are, I think we're always trying to get better. No matter who you are or what you do, you're always looking for that, for that edge to, to get better. And, and I think, you know, whether it's the teams that are known for analytics or not known for analytics, they're trying to figure out what those edges are and, and, and how they can get continue to, to, to improve in, in every aspect of, of what they do. Yeah, Joey Votto has long been, as you know, a favorite of people in the analytics community. You know, conversely, a certain segment of uh, more old school fans uh, have criticized him. You know, maybe they still do for, you know, he, he walks too much. He doesn't drive in enough runs. How have you viewed that criticism from the inside? I would say that if you keep getting on base and you don't make outs, then you're going to create runs. So I love the fact that he gets on base and he can also drive in runs. It's He's a guy that he's hit 30 home runs in, in, in a season multiple times. You know, he, he consistently hits doubles. I, I think that's a that's a not a great criticism of him. I think he's a tremendous player. He's, he's had a tremendous career, Hall of Fame career. And, you know, when you look at him, he's a guy that, that does everything he can to make sure that he is helping a team create and score runs. When we chatted a week ago, you mentioned how difficult it can be to trade popular players, you know, which is something that you have certainly had, had to do. You know, I'll put you on the spot here a little bit. Would it be possible to trade Joey Votto, given how much of an icon he is to Cincinnati fans? No, I think when you when you look at, you know, trading popular players, it, it is really tough. You know, I, I, I've i mentioned this story before when we traded Jay Bruce, my, my oldest daughter is, was a huge fan and she didn't talk to me for four days afterwards. And I think that's something where you, you have to understand there, there's a connection. Fans make connections with players and it's not always transactional. You know, you, you have... When, when players have played here for such a long time, whether whether it's it's Jay Bruce back then or Eugenio Suarez and Jesse Winker in the spring, you have to realize that that fans made a connection with those players. They're they're good people. They they you know Jesse Winker grew up in this game for uh, in our, with our organization for ten years, and it, it's something that you can't take for granted because you know it, it affects it, it affects everybody, not just the the fans, but it also affects the people in your clubhouse, the people that. Uh, your ticket takers, your security staff, or they, that see these guys every day, that get to know them, that get to know their families. I think that's a that, that's that's something you really have to to look at. And and whatever we do, we have to make sure that we're we're making decisions uh, that are best for the organization long term. But at the same time, you know, there's understand what those personal connections. You know, keeping a player or, or, or trading a player that that they have to come into into play, and we have to be very cognizant of what we're doing every time we make those decisions. And when you are making decisions with the future of the club in mind, Ben Charrington was on, when he was on last month, I brought up how reluctant Ben had been to use the word rebuild when he was first hired as Pirates GM. You know, this despite the fact that a rebuild was clearly in order there. 
Are the Cincinnati Reds rebuilding right now? I think we, you know we, we've moved some players from our team. You've got some players that some of our young pitchers, uh, Graham Ashcraft, Nick Lodolo, Hunter Green, that have come up. You know, I, I think we're transitioning to a, a model that we're trying to build through our own scouting and player development system. You know, we're trying to bring players into our minor league system, develop them in a winning culture and make sure that they're continuing to win at the minor leagues to continue to win at the big leagues. And I think it's something where the last couple of years we've really, whether it's improved our drafts, uh, brought in some players via trade, our international department, you know, and, and we've brought in some prospects, you know, but we're still trying to compete every day at the big league level when, when you get there. And I think that's something where maybe we were more in transition than a straight rebuild, but at the same time, you know, we need to continue to build through scouting and player development. And that's something that we we focused on over the last couple of years to continuously build sustainability in, with our major league club. With player development in mind, is young pitching the organization's strength right now? I don't know. I think we've got a pretty good balance. I think we've got some good young pitching. I also think we've got some exciting young position players. When you look at guys like Ellie De La Cruz, who's in Dayton and Jose Torres, who's there, and Matt McLean and Reese Hines. You know, I think we've we've got a pretty good balance of players that we're really excited about. You know, we obviously we have some pitchers at the big league level in Green, Lodolo, Ashcraft, uh, Alexis Diaz, Tony Santion, and then some other guys in, in you know in Double A and A ball that that we've acquired. But I do think we have a good balance, and I, and I'm pretty excited about our group as a whole. One of the young pitchers that you have came over in the Sunny Gray deal, you know, which is Chase Petty. A, how excited are you about him? And B, just how much risk is there to acquire a pitcher with his profile, a really hard thrower coming out of high school? Well, I think, you know, you look at the rate of rate of attrition for pitchers, and I think there's always a, a risk. But we're definitely excited. We're excited to have him. He's in Daytona right now. We've had some tandem starters. So a tandem, we, he starts uh, every other game. And then in the second game, he relieves uh, somebody else who starts. So He's just developing, getting his innings in, and you know, hopefully he's going to be in the big leagues at some point, and we're really excited about him. He's a guy that does throw hard, got ability to miss bats, but he also has a, the ability to throw strikes and, and pitch as well. Brandon Williamson, who was acquired in the Suarez-Winker deal, doesn't get nearly as much attention, at, at least not nationally. Why should Reds fans be excited about Brandon? You know, Brandon's a guy that pitched last year in double A. This year he went back to double A and, you know, maybe not a popular decision, but we thought it was best for his development to go to double A versus triple A. He, he started there, struggled in his first couple of outings, but he's been really good since. Left-handed, has a chance to have four pitches that he can throw for strikes, has a chance to be a legitimate major league starting pitcher. Just a guy who competes every day, and we're really excited to, to see what he can do uh, as he grows his career and, and moves forward. Another player, Nick, that was involved in that same trade, who I think a lot of fans don't know anything about is, is Connor Phillips. I looked at his numbers this morning. He just turned 21 years old. He has 72 strikeouts and 49 innings with Dayton. So presumably he has some pretty good stuff. Yeah. Our, our guys are very excited about him. Our pitching, our pitching folks are you know extremely excited about where he is, where he's going. He's got a chance to be a solid middle top of the rotation type pitcher, but it's again, it's 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 all about development. You know, he's got a lot of strikeouts. It's continuing to learn to pitch, continuing to you know limit his walks, and just continue to grow as a pitcher. I think you know we look at a lot of players, and you know we expect them, oh hey, you throw hard, you can do this, but you you have to learn how to pitch. You know, you look at a guy like Graham Ashcraft who got to the big leagues. He was walking roughly four, four and a half guys per nine in Triple A. He got to the big leagues and started throwing more strikes, having more success. He, he, you know, it's just a it's a learning experience for all of these guys. You know, coming from one level to the next and and, and continuing to graduate to the big league level. And and Connor Phillips is, is no exception to that. And with player development, pitcher development in mind. I had asked earlier about Dick Williams' impact on the team's vision. Kyle Bodie obviously impacted the org's pitching development quite a bit while he was there. How much of what Bodie brought to the org remains in place? I think a lot of it. You know, I, th I think you know Kyle came in and, and changed some of the processes we do, and, and Kyle was good for this organization while he was here, and, and it's something where a lot of the guys that are still that were here last year were still in place this year. You know, when when you look at 
our two pitching coordinators now, Brian Conger and, and, and Casey Weathers, Derek Johnson, Eric Jagers came in with Kyle. You know, we, we've, we've got a lot of guys who have done a lot of good work in our pitching space. And, and it's, you know, we're really excited to, to have those guys continue to move forward with them and, and uh, continue to help develop our pitching program. Yeah, circling back, Nick, to some of the young players that you've acquired, the track record for any team of acquiring young prospects is going to be mixed. Looking back, one that you made a number of years ago that that was great was Eugenio Suarez was acquired from the Tigers in exchange for Alfredo Simone. What are your memories of that trade, which seems to be one of the best the Reds have made since you've been in the org? I think that's something we, we, we looked at as... You know, we were, I remember, I was actually talking to Walt Jockety the other day about this. Uh, we were in the, in our suite and our suite in the winter meetings that year was directly across the hall from the Tigers. So we had a chance to, there was a couple players that, that we talked about that people liked. We ended up getting Jonathan Crawford in that deal, you know, as, as a first round pick who we liked out of the draft, but had some injury issues. Uh, but our, our scouts, Mike Squires in particular, who was is a former scout now retired, really liked uh, Eugenio Suarez. We thought that he had the ability to, to continue to play infield. He, uh, get, he was getting stronger. He was he was developing a, a good approach. And we thought there was more power in the bat. And, and we were just really excited to, to acquire him. I know that's something that, you know, we, we had some heated debates about him versus some other guys. And, and, and he's he's one that, that definitely won out. And, and we... Uh, you know, we, we made sure that that was something we, we, we really wanted in that deal. It wasn't something where he was a throw-in. We, we really, our scouts and our, our, our staff really wanted him in, in that trade, and, and uh, we were ended up making it happen. And drafting is, of course, the lifeblood for many teams, if not all teams. Your team has drafted actually very well over the past decade. You know, there's been Green, Lodolo, India, Tyler Stevenson, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, as first-round picks. I assume you take a lot of pride in that and seeing most of those guys, uh, if not all, make it to the big leagues. Yeah, and I think that, you know, when you look at a draft, it's, it's you look at those first couple round guys and th- those first couple rounds are, are, are obviously important. But when you get Tyler Malley and Graham Ashcraft and Alexis Diaz and players like that after the fifth round, those guys are the ones that make the impact to your clubs. And you put them in a development system and you, you make sure that those kids are also developed. You know, your first round guys are, are always going to be really good. But, you know, all the way back from having Johnny Cueto, who was a $50,000 sign and make it to the big leagues and make the impact that he has. It's, it's been th- th- those are the important parts of draft draft. International signing is, is not just bringing that top end talent, but also the depth, because, you know, that, that depth will pop and, and you'll get legitimate major league players, whether it's starters, relievers, or, or everyday players out of them. So we need to be focused on our entire draft, not just the first couple of rounds. And with player development in mind, you know, you mentioned uh, young Ellie uh, De La Cruz earlier. I was looking at his numbers, and there are some really nice offensive numbers so far this year, but there's also a fairly low walk rate and a fairly high K rate. Are those concerns to you, or is he just simply a 20-year-old learning his way in pro ball? Yeah, I think he's a 20-year-old learning his way in pro ball. I mean, if you want to go through his walk rate, his strikeout rate, you know, he's 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 moved up a level from Daytona to, to Dayton, but he's improving his walk rate. You know, he's 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 cutting some of his strikeouts. He's playing really good defense. He, he's he's an exciting player on a lot of different levels. But I'm also excited about having a 20-year-old kid who continues to improve his game and, and continue to hone his skills. I, I think you, you have to give him some time to develop as a, as a player that just turned 20 before the, the, the beginning of the season, and, and he's going to take time. I think that we get really excited about, hey, this guy's played really well here, and we forget about the development process that is the minor leagues. And and we, we want that guy in the big leagues. We want that guy to be perfect right out of the shoot. And yeah, I think we're all like that, but you know, we have to make sure that we're giving these guys time to develop because he's showing you the defense, showing you the base running, showing you the ability to the, the bat the ball skills, and, and he's showing that he is improving his strikeout to walk as he's moving up levels too, which is good. Yeah, Jose Barrero, I believe, has struggled a bit this year. He is arguably the best position player prospect on this club. Yeah, I, I would say that that's really hard to say right now. Jose's a guy that he hurt his hand. He broke his handmate in January. Obviously, with the lockout, we we weren't able to uh, we weren't able to see him. And then you know he he goes and and he misses all of spring training. He misses the beginning of the season. 
And right now he, he's, he's basically in spring training. He's still trying to get his at bats and get his, get his feet underneath him for where he is. I, I think that's a tough, that's tough to say that he's, he's struggled this year. I mean, he's, he's played okay at triple a, but he needs, he needs more at bats. He needs, he needs more, uh, he needs more time to, to get himself ready to be able to put himself in a position to be, to be at a spot where, you know, he, you're, you're looking for him to play, to be an everyday contributor at the major league level. And we are running uh, short on time here, Nick, but I do want to hit you with uh, a few more quick things. How hard was April? I assume there were a few sleepless nights for you. Yeah. No, you know, look, I, I think we, I've said this a lot. Obviously the record was tough. You know, we, we had, you know, we had some things that, that came up and, and, you know, I, I would never want to just say, Oh, well, we had injuries. Yeah. But we've had, we, we were in the middle of bringing some younger players up to the big leagues. And, and I, I said this to a lot of folks before we even started the season that this is going to be a developmental process for these kids and they need to learn in the major leagues, how to become major league players. And it's something where, whether it's Hunter Green, who had a tough couple of starts out of the shoot. I know that Lodolo got hurt. Even guys that were being projected as, hey, this guy's going to be great right away. Art Warren didn't have a full year of service in the big leagues and still learning. I think that's, you know, Tony Santion. We, we had 10 pitchers in our opening day staff that had under a year of major league service. And I think that's something we looked at and said, okay, this is going to be a learning experience on a lot of different levels. And, and we need to continue to help develop these kids and grow these kids. And and I think that that put it into perspective for some of some of April. I think, yeah, you're, you're looking at, I want to win. I want that. That's the goal. The goal is to win at the major league level, to win championships at the major league level. And that, that has not escaped us. And, and, you know, we, we haven't discounted that. We, we want that and we want to continue to pursue those goals, but part of those goal to getting to those goals is making sure that those kids develop at the major league level and continue to improve their skills at this level and, and where they can be quality major league players. And you need the right people in place to help players develop at the big league level. It stands out that the Phillies and Angels, two teams that came into the year with higher expectations, you know, at least from, from fan bases, you know, than, you, than your team, you know, they fired their managers recently. Why is David Bell the right fit as a manager for the Reds going forward? You know, I, I look when you look at our coaching staff and what they've done over the last couple of years with with some younger talent, bringing them to the big leagues. You know, they, they've done a good job of continuing to develop talent, whether it's Tyler Stevenson or Jonathan India uh, from from the offensive standpoint, or you know, you look at guys like Luis Castillo and and Tyler Malley and that that have taken steps forward. You see the development history of these of these coaches and and what they've done. And yeah, it's, it was trying in April and. And, you know, but when you're trying to bring up a lot of younger players, you know, you got to have some patience with what you're doing and, and uh, it's going to take a little time for you to get there. And David Bell is the man for that job. Yeah. David's done a good job with a lot of younger guys, a lot of injuries with this team. And, and it, you know, it's, he's done a good job with, with the group he's had. Fantastic. We are out of time, Nick. You know, you have business to attend to. I have an appointment I need to get to. So I will thank you once again for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks, David. Appreciate you having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Audio. Welcome to Fangraphs Audio. I'm Dan Zimborski, and no, wait, I'm Ben Clemens, joined by Dan Zimborski, and Today, we are going to have another episode of Dan and Ben catch up and talk about baseball. How's it going, Dan? Hey, Dan. How's it going? I'm Ben. <laughs> uh, we have a lot of random topics to cover today, but why don't we kick it off with the team that we've written about the most recently, the Blue Jays? Yeah, the Blue Jays are interesting. It's weird. I always grew up hating the Blue Jays, but I, I, I like them now when they're against the Yankees. It's, it's a mutual enemy of the Orioles. They are surprisingly, it's, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but they have been, you know, one of the one of the hottest teams in the last few weeks. Uh, they went on a long winning streak. They they swept the Angels. Of course, everyone's sweeping the Angels. They swept the White Sox. They split with the uh, with the Cardinals, took two or three from the Mariners, the Reds. Of course, that's not that impressive. But the point is that they went from just above 500 in mid-May to a pretty solid 33-22 as we write this. Uh, there will have been a couple more games since then, uh, uh, Dan. Uh, so so tell me about Zips and, and what Zips says. You'll find out about Zips when I'm, when I'm good and ready. No, I don't exactly know what Zips is going to say about the Blue Jays, but I do know, as you wrote, that the next two weeks are going to matter a ton for them. And that makes sense because 
I mean, this is like too simplistic, but you need to win your easy games. And the Blue Jays have a bunch of easy games coming up after an incredibly tough schedule. And so they should win them in uh, in Zips's estimation, I believe. Would you say yes. that roughly covers? <laughs> that, 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 that I believe would cover it. Um, what it comes down to is when you look at the projections, uh, kind of at the, at the default start of, of stand status, uh, the Blue Jays projected in the Zips to have a, like a 29% uh, chance of winning the division you know winning the division is the prize because if you're one of the top two you get a buy and since you're not the since they're not the al central team if you win the al east you're probably getting a a buy yeah it's it's almost impossible that the al east winner won't get a buy so to maintain that pace i mean zips expects them to go over the uh the the, uh, the nine remaining games uh when i when i ran it expected them to go 5.6 and 3.4 Obviously, you can't actually go 5.6, 3.4. So, you know, they have to go 6-3 and three or they lose ground. Uh, and it's the same kind of thing because three games after that, well, three, they have three games against the Yankees after that. And that, of course, is a much harder series of games to play. But it's also much higher leverage simply because you are playing the first place team. Uh, yeah. The Yankees will be in first place when they reach there unless something really weird happens. And essentially, the Blue Jays lose ground there, too, unless they win two out of three. So the Blue Jays are in a position where... If they don't win two thirds of their games over the next two weeks, they lose ground in in the divisional race. So that's a pretty big deal. So these are really high stakes. So you need Gosman to be on. You need other pitchers who aren't Ryu to stay healthy. You need everyone to kind of be on the same page, maximize the odds. No gratuitous playing of of Tapia or anything. Yeah, I mean. If they do win two-thirds of their games, or even three-quarters, then it's going to be really good, though. If they sweep the Yankees, that completely flips around. I mean, completely flips around as much as you can in mid-June. The divisional race, which is pretty interesting. One thing that we you shouldn't say in baseball analysis is, this is a must-win series. Because it almost never is, unless it's a playoff series. And it's almost never a must-win game, unless it's an elimination game. But this series has a huge amount of leverage on what happens to the rest of the Blue Jays' season, in a way that early-season series usually don't. Yeah, uh, referencing uh, your projection table for them, uh, the difference between in the scenario given, which was the, the Jays go six and three and the Yankees go five and four, because that was the, the projection of the next nine games. If you start from that position, uh, the difference between a Toronto sweep and a New York sweep is about one quarter of a divisional title, which is quite a big deal for a three game mid-June series. So, yeah, it, it's definitely worth watching. Do you think they would take out four bottles of champagne and pop one open if they swept that series? It, it makes sense to do that because the alternative is to have four bottles of champagne and only spray a quarter of each one and then rebottle it. But yeah. I think you would lose carbonation over that coming months. Like a waste. Or maybe you spray each other with a drink that is one quarter the price of the champagne bottle. Perhaps like, the champagne of beers. Yeah, the champagne of beers. Or you can have, I guess... Royal Crown Cola, because that's an expensive, sophisticated cola, because it's the cola of kings, according to the name. You could, you know, a lesser champagne. Oh, that's true. Yeah, don't don't go for the expensive bottles. Just get a, just get, get a cheap, cheap stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, Ben, I guess we're going to continue this bit for a little bit more. I saw that you wrote about a Blue Jays reliever, Adam Simber. I think that Adam Simber is very fun. Is that a controversial opinion? Oh, no, he's a lot of fun. And, you know, I've always uh, liked Adam Simber because I tend to make a, a, a Darmok and Jalad reference. Uh, Simber, when the walls fell, is how I think of his his uh, sidearm motion, his submarine motion, would you say? It is the, the strangest sidearm motion I've seen in a while. It just feels wrong somehow. Like I, I can't quite place it, but something with the combination of the positioning of his body on the mound and the start of his windup transitioning into that sidearm motion looks very sudden and jerky. I can see why hitters have so much trouble hitting him because there just aren't pitchers that look like that. Yeah, when I was a kid, I, I played Little League and, you know, I played up into my, my teens and then I, I pretty much knew I was not going to become a professional baseball player in any way. Right. I was a, a, a sidearm pitcher. I wasn't full submarine or anything, uh, but, you know, my stuff sucked. My <laughs> fastball peaked at 70 miles per hour. But, you know, teenage kids don't really face a lot of sidearm pictures. Right. So basically, I could pitch in short stints until they saw me a couple times. That makes sense. And I feel like Simber kind of benefits from that, too, in that, like, I mean, yeah, you see him a few more times. But when he changes something about his game, it is very uncomfortable for hitters to deal with. 
I also found it interesting. I was using Alex Chamberlain's pitch comp leaderboards. Those things are really great, by the way. I don't know if you've played around with them much. A little bit. It's kind of, I don't know how useful they are for analysis, at least in the way I use them, but they're very fun. You can see whose pitches are most similar. But one thing that he does that's very nice is, uh, is launch angle influence. So how much does this pitcher's pitch change the launch, average launch angles achieved of the hitters that they're facing? And Simber Sinker is one of the lowest launch angle influence pitches in baseball, which makes sense, right? It, it just falls off the map completely. And so hitters hit a bunch of grounders on it. But his slider is one of the highest positive launch angle influence pitches. And so he gets a ton of pop-ups and a ton of ground balls because his slider levitates and moves upward relative to gravity by a lot. And his sinker, because it has, you know, kind of normal four-seam motion, only upside down, just really falls off the map. And I just think that's a very interesting combination that if you ask someone, hey, what's a good thing that a pitcher could do if he's getting contact? You'd say, well, ground balls and pop-ups. Well, Adam Simber doesn't miss a lot of bats, but his two best pitches are one of the best pop-up pitches and one of the best ground ball pitches. That's pretty good. What I'm thinking about with with Simber and sidearmers generally, has anyone done a study of launch angles and similar pitches from sidearmers versus overarmers? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I haven't really seen one. I was... I was wondering because Simber's fastball, which you'd think would be his like four seam, his regular fastball, which he throws, I don't know, less than the sinker, but some, it doesn't do much. Like it doesn't influence launch angles much. Whatever a hitter does, they mostly do it to that fastball. And as a result, it can get hit kind of hard at times. But you'd think it would be, you'd think it would induce a ton of ground balls because it has no vertical movement at all. Like, it's almost and he a change he, he used to get a lot of, uh, of ground balls. Yeah. It's very interesting that, like, when he throws a four-seamer, it almost only has sideways motion. So it's like a change-up almost, right? Like, because he throws it in the 80s, and it doesn't have any rise because of where his arm is. And so you'd say, oh, yeah, like, that should get a bunch of grounders. But it doesn't. And so I do think that there's something to the fact that if you look at pitch motions, you need to adjust for kind of release point and arm angle in figuring out what they do. I've always struggled at those kinds of things just because there aren't enough side armors. Yeah, that tends to be a problem with a lot of studies we'd like to do with with really freakish players. Like yeah. someone asked me, remember uh, uh, Pat uh, uh, Vendetta of when he <laughs> yeah. was switch pitching? Classic. I was still at ESPN at the time, and someone there asked me, "Can you can you do a study of how platoon advantage pictures would be?" I'm like, I have no idea how to start that. <laughs> So I like, studied Pat Venditti. Yeah, I studied him, and I've studied Bob Stanley, and those are like the only two I can think of. So if you have an idea, of... yeah, that that is one of the issues with studying unicorns. Well, there, there's only one of them. That's that's kind of the whole idea. Therefore, it's very difficult to actually say, or it's not difficult to say conclusive things about them. It's very difficult to say broad to make broad sweeping conclusions because what's actually happening is that what you're measuring is them. And all their weird idiosyncrasies. You're not getting to smooth them out into the general population because they are the population. Now I'm trying to remember. Uh, am, am I losing my mind? I remember Bob Stanley toying with it but not using it in a game. But did he or am I thinking of some? Oh, Greg Harris. It's Greg Harris. Who is that? Before my time, I think. Was he good? Oh, he fished for a long time. Yeah, I, I, I just couldn't remember. I was like, wait, no, Bob Stanley was the one who kind of screwed up the end of the 86 World Series. Well, he pitched for a long time without being particularly good. But no, Greg Greg Harris did alternate his arms in, in one game. Whoa. Uh, but I know he had played with that for a while. That's interesting. I kind of thought of that as Venditti was the first one to do it ever. No, there were actually a, a, a few. I think Larry Corcoran played with it. Tony Mullane, maybe. I'm used to the hitter side, you know, the, the Anthony Rendon type thing, where you just decide to hit opposite-handed once in a while, especially in blowouts. Oh, Bobby that was Baez fun. Done that. I, I that's a that's a moment I want to remember. It was a funny moment, and my favorite part about that is that nobody had to throw a picture at anyone and get angry about the unwritten rules. Like, how dare he hit a home run and show up on the mound? He's not even a pitcher, and he had to humiliate him. Well, Dan, one person who did not get angry about the unwritten rules in that game. And probably won't be about the unwritten rules in any Angels game going forward is Joe Madden, because he doesn't work for the Angels anymore. <laughs> that, was a, that was a good segue. I'm a very appreciative. So I think you and I are of different opinions on the Madden firing, but probably of the same opinion, actually, and just expressing it in different ways. What did you think about it? I kind of have mixed feelings. I think Madden has some problems as a manager. I mean, he's not some legendary great manager. 
Uh, but I also don't think that anything wrong with the Angels is really his fault. And the Angels have been, what, through like 13 managers in the last decade or so? And that yeah. that, that number I just made up completely. So It sounds believable. Yeah, it sounds believable. So we'll just not do any fact-checking on that so that people can get mad. And it's, it's fun to get people mad about something. But regardless, the, the Angels have had a lot of managers. And I don't think Madden is the problem. They're just going to get on the offseason some other old manager who they remember, like what the Phillies did in recent years with, with Joe Girardi, where they made Gabe Kapler the, the scapegoat for the team's problems, yeah. decided they had a, they needed a manager who knows how to win. Yeah, how'd that go? Yeah, and apparently, you know, Kapler knew how to win in San Francisco since they, you know, won a bazillion games last year, 107. Yeah. I will say that I don't think Kapler was a great fit for a, an important part of the managerial job, which is dealing with the fan base. Like well, that who, actually, who is, is not, a good fit for the Phillies fan base? It's like Larry Boa, right? There's there's not many fits for that job, but Kapler's desire slash willingness to do kind of strange stuff really did not sit well. I mean, the first time that he pulled a reliever into the game without warming them up, it was just over, and I think he never really recovered from that in terms of fan appreciation, which really matters. I think that that affects the temperature of the team and affects players' morale in ways that we don't have a great way to measure and i couldn't convince you i bet that it's quantitatively important but i don't think i'd want to be a phillies player and play in a town where the whole town hates me that sounds pretty terrible but here's here's the thing if they won games they'd love them right there is also he'd be there weirdo right like because it started out bad it stayed bad i mean you look at at the 76ers right and sam hinkey he's not the type that 70 that that philly fans would normally like didn't they run him out of town though well, it's complex, but, you know, the process became kind of a local meme, I think. That's true. Everybody loves Embiid. Yeah, I mean, it's, I could be attributing a, a, a national thing into a more localized thing, but I kind of got the feeling that when they saw the strategy and, and they felt that it was working out, that the process was working out, I, I had the impression, I mean, I'm not as tuned to the NBA audience to say uh, the uh, baseball audience, I got, I got the impression at least if I'm mistaken, tell us in the comments. Oh, yeah. Please don't. That they, but, uh, that, they, that they kind of warmed up about him. That sounds right. Oh, and if you're mad in the comments, remember, I'm Ben Clemens, C-L-E-M-E-N-S. Hey, somebody spelled my name right. That's worth all the angry emails. Well, you spell it the same as Clemens. I do. It's surprising how few people can, uh, can get it right, but they tend not to. Yeah, I think I'm mostly of the same opinion as you about the Madden firing that, like, just who cares? Like that that's not actually gonna change anything. The issue with the team is that it's basically Arde Moreno. Let's be honest. Yeah. The issue with the team is not that I mean that Joe Madden walked somebody with the bases loaded once. That was terrible. Shouldn't do that. Just really should not. And if that makes Mike Trout look at you with like disbelief in his eyes, I mean that's probably not good. I I'd probably prefer to not have that happen. But it's really marginal. And I saw today that Perry Manazian said in an interview, he's uh, the GM, or maybe the president of baseball operations, I don't know, that he had not consulted any coaches or players about firing Madden. And well, then that seems bad. <laughs> that, yeah. That's not how I would prefer to fire the guy who has the job because of relationships, essentially. Like, a modern manager does not have the job because he's so capable of understanding infield shifts and pitcher usage. There's a little bit of that, but it's mostly that... He's a relationship manager, right? He manages the relationship between what the front office wants to do and what the players want to do and kind of finds a happy medium that can make both sides happy. If you don't ask either side, well, that makes it hard for me to believe that it was a good firing. Now, I don't think Madden was the genius visionary manager that he made himself out to be and that others made him out to be. I think that he really cultivated a, like an aura of just knowing better and being smarter, starting with when he was with the Rays and he wears glasses, you know, and they're kind of fashionable glasses for an old guy. I don't think that was really a thing. And you could kind of tell that he became more of a retrograde, trust your gut, don't trust the numbers manager over time. He walked a guy with the bases loaded <laughs> on purpose and it didn't work. And they won the game, but he gave up a bunch of runs by doing it. And then afterwards he said, I don't know, I just want to change things up. That's not what you say if you're a, a numbers driven guy. And so I did find the disconnect between his numbers-driven reputation and his numbers kind of ignoring actual behavior weird. But yeah, he's not the reason the Angels lost 12 games in a row. 
that's pretty clear, I think. One of my favorite Madden facts is is people don't realize how long he's been in baseball. I mean, he's not a young manager. He, when, when he became a, a full-time manager for the first time, not just a fill-in, I mean, he was 52. Yeah. Earl Weaver was younger than Madden when Earl Weaver was... was Wait, really? After 1982, Earl Weaver was 51. So he had that whole, most, almost the entirety of his Orioles managerial career was at an age younger before Madden got his first stint, essentially, his first real stint. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, Earl Weaver, he when he retired, he was he was 56 years old. He was famous for being an old man. Yeah, yeah it's just he, he, he always had, you know, that white hair pretty early. Uh, the thing about Madden is I think he functioned better... With a front office that had more, let's just say, agency of its own to do things. Right. In battles, like with if like if Theo Epstein had a battle, or the or the or the Rays GMs had battles with Madden, those front offices had a lot of 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 power in the organization to impose a general philosophy of the game. Yeah. I don't think that any Angels GM in recent years has that had that power. No, definitely not. They're mostly just kind of, I don't want to say feckless, but they have this kind of almost captured by their ownership where they just kind of go with the flow and they don't really have, they can't really change the direction of the organization by themselves. Yeah, I agree. They're not there because they don't know baseball. They obviously know baseball, but they're kind of there to do the bidding of ownership and to kind of manage the ship, not steer it the way that they want to, but... You know, someone else figures out the direction and they keep the lights on and make sure that they know how deep the water is and all that kind of stuff. But they're not they're not there charting the course. Yeah, I think when, when Madden is doesn't have that to play off against, then I think that it's it's it becomes kind of a more challenging personnel situation. So at my old job, we had uh, we had a guy who liked to throw ideas off the wall. You know, he'd, he'd say some crazy thing, like suggest some strategy that was unheard of and kind of counterintuitive and no one had think, thought about before. And usually we would just say like, nah, that's no good. <laughs> this, does, this doesn't make any sense. Or we'd look into it for 10 minutes and say, this doesn't make any sense. But sometimes you'd come up with something really interesting and you'd say, oh, actually, yeah. Like, why don't we try that? And I could imagine that Madden is doing that. He, he's firing out 73 bad ideas a day. And the Rays up front office would say like, well, these 72 are really bad, Joe, and you're not allowed <laughs> to do them. And then the 73rd, they'd be like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like, I bet that would boost player morale at no cost to our winning and, like, would be pretty innovative and maybe it'd actually even help. But then if he fires that 73 ideas and the front office says, I mean, you're Joe Madden, you're, you're a baseball guy. Sure, go do them. You have a great record. Well, that's worse. Yeah. And I, I do think that you're right, that, that really it's not a symptom of Madden so much as a symptom of the Angels. But Because some people have interpreted his comments as being, like, anti-analytics. But this is, like, the least analytic organization he's been a manager for i would consider joe madden a skew line to analytics he's not anti or pro analytics he's just doing his own thing yeah i think that's fair and sometimes it's analytical and sometimes it's just not and, it, it... and i mean he's a guy who came up through baseball at a time before this was a thing exactly i mean he he i mean he has been around for a long time uh his first fill-in stint I don't remember the exact uh, circumstances, but that was in 1996. Really? And in 1996, this this was this was also with the Angels. They were still the California Angels. This was two this was two names ago. I mean, in 1996, I remember that was a time where we were still trying to fight for to get people to buy that on base percentage and slugging percentage were useful. That's what the world was in 1996 in baseball. So, you know, a guy coming up in that situation, I mean, I think for a guy who's, you know, well into his 50s and has been in baseball for decades, he has been remarkably open to change. I think more than a lot of people in his position. I think I contrast that with like Tony La Russa, who was actually very forward-thinking analytically in the 1990 context, but has, you know, fallen pretty far behind uh, since then. I think Madden has embraced these things. So I don't necessarily think he's anti-analytics, even if he's not necessarily the manager that very heavy stat head guys uh, would pick, given the choice. I'm going to do a thing that I don't like when people do. So just just as a warning. And try to make a broad generalization about types of people based on this very specific small thing. I think that there are some people who like being iconoclasts. And like coming up with kind of minority opinions. 
and that can serve you well when the broad state of the game is retrograde. So Tony LaRusso did a good job of this, of saying, I don't like the way things are in the 90s. I'm like, I want to try something different. And that worked well because the way that people were doing things was bad and illogical and no one had really stopped to question it too much. As you said, people were trying to convince others that on-base percentage mattered. It was it was a weird time in baseball. This was before I, I mean, I was 11 in 1996. It was before I really understood anything about baseball statistics. But I mean, I don't think teams understood a lot about them, as you said. So I was hardly alone. But if you if your inclination is to be an iconoclast in 2021 in baseball or 2022, like now, well, I don't know, like that tends to mean you're going to say, I don't believe numbers. And eh, look, you you should have a very considered approach to numbers and you shouldn't blindly trust them, but just going against them because they're what everyone does is not necessarily a good idea. That makes me worried that I'm going to do that when I'm like 70 and 26 point something years. Because I have a tendency to do the opposite of what anyone tells me to do at any time. So I'm a little worried I'm going to be the Murray Chess of, of 2050. So this is, um, this is baseball adjacent and, because it's about Nate Silver. But Nate Silver is apparently researching a new book. I heard someone talk about a podcast he was on, so 17th Hand, about the successful traits and habits of successful gamblers. And he defined gamblers as, you know, people who risk their own capital in various things, whether you're a businessman or like a, a personal account investor or a sports gambler or a poker player or whatever. But one of them was uh, they're inherently my contrarian and express minority opinions, because if you do what everyone does, you won't win. And I, I think that's interesting. Like that kind of makes some sense, right? It, if you manage the same way as everybody else, you'll never stand out. And people like contrarians. But you actually have to have some considered contrarianism. You can't just be like, well, I want to do something different. And I, I think that you seem to do a pretty good job of that. I don't know. I've never seen you manage a baseball team. So let's hold off judgment on oh, that. No, nobody wants to see me manage a baseball team. <laughs> you know how many fights I would get in press conferences with the press? Right. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to manage a baseball team either. Yeah, I, I do find that interesting that, you know, a trait of successful people is being contrarian. But that's also a trait of unsuccessful people. True. And also, for the record, you were born in 1978. I was born in 1985. Ah, good point. I keep forgetting that we've uh, we've body swapped for yeah. this episode. Yeah, we have to keep to our shtick. Because you know what happens if you don't keep the shtick? Then Magnum P.I. becomes an old conservative police commissioner on a TV show and sells reverse mortgages. And he's no longer Magnum P.I. I wrote an entire article about Freaky Friday, the movie. Which one? The old one or the uh, the remake? Yeah, so Meg told me that there were two. I didn't know that. I've never seen either. But it was about uh, how the Mets Freaky Friday, the Giants' ability to win every game from them. And then at the end of the crazy Mets-Giants game with the big comeback, the body swap <laughs> went back. So I, I know a thing or two about sticking to a shtick even after it's exhausted its, uh, its usefulness. <laughs> that, that's certainly one of them. Like uh, Guy Fieri. I always wonder. I mean, he sticks to his shtick. He's he always does. Guy Fieri. He's the mayor of Flavortown, yeah. You have to wonder if he wakes up in the morning and he goes to the bathroom and he goes to the mirror and he's like, oh, God, another day I have to put on the, the the bleached spikes and I have to put on the bracelets and the bowling gear and all that. Wouldn't it be amazing if he's bald and that's a wig? <laughs> that would be great. I would I would totally buy a Guy Fieri wig if he was bald and that was just a wig. I watch a cooking show he hosts called Tournament of Champions, where it's, it's basically a bunch of fine dining chefs who compete in this really really strange format where they spin wheels to determine what kinds of foods they have to cook and in what time and then cook against each other for blind tasting by very fancy chef judges and it's all like very elevated cuisine and the chefs are really good and the judges are impressive and you know three michelin star restaurant judges and then it's hosted by guy fieri and he's just being guy fieri it's great I, I really enjoy his uh, his shtick, but I agree with you. He does it at all times, and I can't believe that anyone could live like that 100% of the time. Yeah, I mean, there are days, I mean, I have my own shtick, I guess, and there are days I'm like, oh, I don't want to have to do all the all the junk that I do where I'm mad about every stupid thing that I see. Yeah, I, I feel the same. But... And I don't even have to have any gear. I mean, I don't like getting dressed in going places if I don't have to, but he has to have all his props. Again, the bleached hair, the bracelets, the bowling shirts, the, all that you have to do. Yeah. Could you imagine Guy Fieri showing up somewhere in like a suit and tie? Yeah. He's like, I just want to go and see a Mahler symphony in my suit with my hair combed. I don't want to. 
I don't want to have to to say anything's off the hook or anything. <laughs> I don't have to come up with nicknames for every person I talk to. Yeah, that that would be exhausting, I, and and it wouldn't make people popular. And if I had to do that daily, you know, Fangraphs is a small company. If I gave you all nicknames, I mean, it would not go over well, and I would not be liked. Would you be Dan the Man Zimborski? I don't know. I don't think you can call your. You can't give yourself the nickname the man. That's That's something that someone else has to chant for you. Yeah, presumably Stan Musial did not give himself that nickname. Yeah, I mean, like, oh, Stan Musial, you could call me the man. Like, oh, (laughs) oh, I'm sorry, Stan the man. I mean, this is now a pivot into another article I wrote, but Brandon Belt nicknamed himself the captain and wore a captain's hat to a game. Well, I sewed a captain's C onto his jersey and then wore a captain's hat. That's kind of the same. True, but he did he did make the effort to have props. Oh, that's so that it, it, it keeps it keeps a funny element. Like if he had called himself the Grand Emperor, you're like that's weird. But if he had showed up with like a crown and an, an ermine robe <laughs> and like uh, 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 an entourage a train of attendants, yeah, yeah. This this is my Earl of the Tenderloin or something. That would be cool. That would be. I like that they sell like a lot of people wear those hats to Giants games now. That's pretty great. The whole bit kind of worked out for him. I mean, the whole King Felix stuff, that was a lot of fun. It was. Also, I don't think he gave himself that name, Felix. So it, it's kind of in between. But still, I, I think that it's fine if he did. Yeah, because the, the whole King's Court, and they really, uh, they really went with it and made it a whole bit. I agree with that. When people really commit to something, I think I like it more in general. Exactly. Commit to the bit. Being halfway in is only so-so. Speaking of being halfway in, this will be my last segue, and we'll hit this one quickly. But the Giants were the most aggressive bunting team in baseball. For a month. And they've been basically the least aggressive bunting team in baseball for the next month. And I find that interesting. Yeah, I wonder if there's, a, if there's an element of tinkering going on. Uh, I, I think, you know, they they did probably see pretty quickly that offense was down. Right. And, you know, in, that's, in that state, generally speaking, one-run strategies tend to be superior. But it's very possible that they felt that the benefit wasn't worth. Well, you say one-run strategies. They have no sacrifice bunts this year. They're one of few teams okay. with no sacrifice hits. Okay, that that's fair. But just generally speaking, the approach. Yeah, small volley things. Yeah, small volley uh, things. I shouldn't say bunts necessarily or, or anything, but yeah. One quick note from editor Dylan Higgins, editor and podcast editor and general all-around editing guy. Uh, Dave Cameron is credited with King Felix. Fangraphs alum and general good guy Dave Cameron came up with King Felix on the USS Mariner blog, not Felix himself, so... Squarely not self-created nickname. Uh, yeah, I, I think that there's some of that. I also think there's some of a classic Gabe Kapler mind game where he gave... I was looking through basically a bunch of press accounts because I wanted to document my article about these Giants bunts. I thought it was interesting. And he told everyone who would listen about how much they loved bunting and how all they'd been doing all spring training was bunting and how Darren Ruff was going to be bunting and Joey Bart was going to be bunting. And they'd put Joey Bart in motion, and they'd run hit and runs with catchers on the bases and do everything crazy. And they came out doing it, and defenses contorted themselves. They moved their third baseman in, they changed the way they shift, and then they just stopped. They just yeah. don't bunt anymore. I think there's something to that, that if you can if you can confuse the other team, you know, some Sun Tzu quote that I don't actually know, then you're winning. Yeah, I think it goes back to kind of the idea that even if bunting isn't a good play when it's like a sacrifice— the fact that it's a threat is always has some value. Yeah. And it keeps the team in position to have a bunt. You don't, you don't, you always, you want to bunt just enough and it's really hard to, to quantify it, but you want to have the threat of a bunt at least have them position like they think you might bunt because that, that yeah. kind of changes the configuration of the infield. But the thing is from the, from research I've seen, you don't really need a high, uh, a bunt for a hit success rate to make it justified. Like, if you have a runner on first, it, it, it's pretty low. I think it was something like 25% if you're successful, just even with it. It's, like, yeah, a great I've, play. I've done a lot of math on this before because I love players who bunt too much. Colton Wong is kind of my favorite version of this. Colton Wong is really smart situationally in bunting. And so his break-even bunt success rate is really low because he, he picks his spots really well. It's, you know, a runner on first with no outs or with one out to where getting the guy to second base is actually kind of important there because the difference between a runner on first and second with two outs is really big. Or like a runner on second with no outs and he bunts. He'll, he'll find his spots where the fail case is still pretty good. And that really lowers your break even significantly. Now, you know who I'd love to see try to 
bring out some random buns? Jordan Alvarez. Ah, wow. This is uh, this is getting great. Now, I wrote about him, but I'd like to see hear what you think about Jordan Alvarez, Dan. He is my favorite player, I think. That's maybe a little strong, but he is, I think, one of my top five favorite players. And a large reason for it is because people don't think he's as good as he is. Is he one of the best three hitters in baseball? I think so. I think Zips probably thinks so as well. And mm-hmm. Zips has been a fan, and, and it's yeah. hard to get, like, you know, a DH to have a great projection. Yeah, so Dan, when you did our trade value series last year, wait, no, and when Ben, when you did our trade value series yes. last year, the first thing that, I'm going to drop this now, the first thing that I did was <laughs> I asked you, Dan, for a big file of five-year Zips projections for every hitter in baseball, essentially, the top 200 or so, every hitter and pitcher, and your projections had Jordan as like the eighth best value of all players in terms of production against expected team controlled salaries and kevin goldstein and i bumped him down slightly in the list because we said uh you know like dh really does limit the flexibility somewhat even if the projections are there and then most of the comments were like do you guys not understand how math works he's a dh like what about his war not just his home runs (laughs) it's like no the projection systems actually think he's better than we do i think that people just see dh and they assume worthless because they've overcommitted to the war bit at this point, they overthink that it's too important to be flexible. It's important. Like, having defensive value is good. But hitting a trillion home runs and always getting on base and not striking out too much is also good. And Jordan Alvarez is a great example of that. He's really valuable to your team. And, I mean, now he's standing in left field sometimes. But even without standing in left field, it doesn't matter. He's that good of a hitter. Yeah, and he is more well-rounded than people give him credit for. He's not Dave Kingman. Yeah, he hits the ball a long way, but he has pretty good plate discipline that has improved since he's been in the majors if he keeps up his plate discipline from this year he's the best hitter in baseball he cut his chase rate like on pitches that aren't borderline so you know borderline pitches i think you actually have to swing at fairly often so just doing in zone out of zone swing rate is no good pitches that are not like just off the plate like actual chase pitches where you chase and look silly he cut his rate of swings on those in half this year And meanwhile, he's swinging at more pitches in the strike zone. Yeah, and it is really hard just from a general standpoint. His out-of-zone swing has gone down while his zone swing has gone up. And it's really hard to make those two go in completely different directions. Generally speaking, if a player, say, has a huge improvement in their zone swing rate, there's going to be some. Yeah, it's partially an approach change. You've just decided, I'm going to swing more. But he's like swing less at the bad stuff and more at the good stuff yeah uh, and that's that, that's huge and he his his contact rates are you know better than league average he's yes, he's, he's not a swing through pitches he's swing and hit pitch very far guy he's also a line drive hitter which is uh i think not all big power hitters are line drive guys but he always has been. He hits the ball at a pretty... Like, he's not an excessively flyball-oriented hitter. He hits the ball to all fields. He's just a, a very well-rounded hitter who happens to hit this, like just hit the crap out of the ball. He has consistently some of the highest max exit velocities, average exit velocities. He hits the ball really hard. But you can think of him as kind of a king-size Luis Arias or something. Like, he's not just up there taking big cuts and whiffing all the time. He just happens to be a much bigger, stronger version of a really good line drive contact hitter. So it was like Big Spoon Luis Arias. Yeah, I, I like that. Luis Arias times 1.25. I think he's a very underrated guy. Now, I know we we hadn't intentionally uh, 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 wanted to talk about Luis Arias. Uh, it wasn't one of our pre-discussed topics, but he is having one of the most fun seasons of any player I can remember. I mean, he's hitting 360. He has no power He's got an on-base percentage, like, 450 as as we talk. And if you get a chance, go look at his on-base percentage on every count. His on-base percentage is above the overall league average for all pitches on every single count. He is on 0-2. He is a 275 hitter with a 309 on-base percentage. Wait, my 0-2... Through 0 and 2 counts in 2022, I have him hitting 414, 414, 448. Wait, where are we? Oh, hold on. I was in career. Yes. Yeah. He's, he's batting 414 after 02. 
But even career, he's a 275 hitter on 0 and 2 for his career. That's that's uh, unbelievable. Yeah, and yeah, he's, it's even better this year. Really 414 fun. on base percentage at 0 and 2. 391 at 1 and 2, 340 at 2 and 2. Maybe that's why it's confusing Apple TV's probabilities since he's better on 0 and 2 than 2 and 2. Their training model is just Luis Arias. <laughs> Their training model is the last at bat. I don't even think it's that good. <laughs> I think the last at bat might do better. That's that's neither here nor there. I'm glad, Dan, that I did not have you on to talk about that. It would have been too long. We would have talked for too long. Yeah, and I, there would have been there would have been numerous libel lawsuits at me. I think after some of my feelings on those props, or perhaps slander. Which slander. one is spoken? Well, I can write and I can write things too. I can yeah, write. That's true. You could actually you could actually get both. Yeah, that that makes me it gives me a question for for legal people out there. In the tra- if there's a transcript of speech that is written, is the transcript itself a separate case of libel? Hey, we could get special guest Cheryl Ring to come on sometime. And yeah, or, or Eugene Friedman or Craig Calcaterra. We have all sorts yeah. of baseball lawyers. Just answer our pressing questions. Like, yeah, if I'm, say- am I slandering and also libeling this person or merely one of the two? Yeah, because I, I think it's one incident if, if you just post a transcript. All right, well, on that note, I don't think this, this discussion is going to get any better from here. So I'm going to sign off. Um, <laughs> this was a, a wonderful and wide-ranging discussion of a lot of things about baseball. Dan, is there anything that you've written recently that you think people should check out? Anything that you've particularly enjoyed? Well, well we've, talked about, we've talked about the Blue Jays. I'm working on some Z-Stat stuff, but we'll get to that next week. Yeah, yes, we will. We'll be back with more, uh, more stream-of-consciousness Z-Stats next week on Fangraphs Audio with the Ben and Dan talk about sometimes baseball and sometimes not baseball. We need a shorter name. (laughs) We'll work on that for next week, too. Uh, Thanks for hanging out with me again, Dan. It's always fun. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Nick Kroll for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've checked out that new Fangraphs merch at Breaking Tea, don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up with everything we have going on at the site, free to your inbox every weekday. Thank you for listening. We hope you have a wonderful week, and we'll talk to you next time.